This series has probably been the longest series I've ever preached since I've been pastoring. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized just how far-reaching the message of the kingdom really is in our lives. So today is going to be somewhat of a wrap-up message Maybe a little bit of reviewing, but I want to introduce some new aspects as we wrap things up with this series. Hopefully it's uh, helped some of you. And, and I believe some of you perhaps have been helped by just knowing what the kingdom is. When it says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what exactly does that mean? So hopefully this has been a useful series for you. Back in March... Do you believe that's when we started this? Back in March, uh, we began talking about the kingdom. We began talking about thy kingdom come from the Lord's Prayer. What is the kingdom and what isn't the kingdom? You might remember that our first several messages revealed that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about was not going to be a restoration of the ancient Israeli kingdom of years gone by. Nor was Jesus preparing everyone for the earthly kingdom that he would establish in some futuristic time. Instead, this kingdom was prophesied some 600 years before Christ. Remember us talking about this, when, when God revealed to Daniel... A Babylonian king's dream. And it was during that time that God revealed to Daniel that this kingdom would, would uh, soon come. And it wouldn't last just for a thousand years. It's not, not, not that part. The kingdom that Jesus ushered in would be forever and ever. From everlasting to everlasting. Jesus said this kingdom was not of this world. It's not something that anyone would be able to see or feel or touch or observe. Instead, Jesus said the kingdom he came to establish would be within you. Somebody say amen to that. Praise the Lord. It would be within you. It's a present day reality. And as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So if this kingdom is indeed a present day reality, folks, it needs to have a dramatic effect on our lives. On how you and I live every day. So we started this in March. Then in May, we went to the Judean hillside where Jesus began to teach and we transitioned into that. Kingdom living. And how this kingdom will impact our lives. And if you remember for several weeks, we talked about the different Beatitudes. The first Beatitude we talked about, oh, it was working so well until, oh man. I thought we just changed batteries. All right, Ryan. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was the first beatitude that we talked about. Quick review here. Bring you up to speed. Here, Jesus was describing one who was having a poverty of spirit. 
One who realizes just how poor they are without Jesus. One who realizes they have absolutely nothing to give in order to find favor with God. And you realize just how poor your spirit is. The next beatitude was, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This kind of piggybacks off of the first beatitude. You see, when one realizes how poor in spirit they are, now listen, what I'm about ready to say is going to uh, come across two ways. For those of you who have accepted Christ, I mean, you've had a, a spiritual revival and awakening in your life because when Jesus came, or you have yet to experience that. But you'll be able to relate to this. When one realizes how poor in spirit they are, how sinful their heart really is, it will produce a heart that will literally mourn, will literally beg God for His mercy and His grace. But when that same heart hears what Jesus has to offer, when he hears that He has come to offer salvation, forgiveness of sins, the free gift that gets us out of sin, that's when they will sell all they have. You remember it talked about in Matthew 5, or, or Matthew 7, I believe, where he says, when you find this treasure, you will go and sell all that you have just to gain this treasure. It's that pearl of great price. You see, when you experience the salvation of Jesus Christ, when you realize how poor in spirit you are, how wretched your heart is, there's that word wretched, but then Jesus says, I'll take care of that. All you have to do is just accept the free gift. Of, you'll give everything that you have. And until you give everything that you have, I wonder if you've really accepted that gift. Different topic, different message. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Several meanings were behind this beatitude, but the main one that we focused on dealt with humility. Having godly meekness means displaying a humility that banishes all human pride and arrogance. Without this, no one can have a relationship with God. Did you hear what I just said? Get past the fact that Brock's now sounding like a preacher again, and I have a certain cadence that I do. Get past that. Do you realize that without humility, you cannot have a relationship with Christ? Let that sink in. Not just when you humble yourselves before God to accept him, but your heart must remain humble until the day that Christ takes you home or he comes back. That's how you maintain a fresh, moldable, pliable, soft heart before God. Next, Ryan. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We translated this like that. Like we translated that one like this. Like those who starve for food, like those who are dying of thirst. Blessed are you if you starve and if you thirst for the ways of God in your life. If you are truly hungering, if you truly thirst, if I truly hunger and thirst for the ways of God. See, that, that's the key there. You notice it just doesn't say, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst, thirsty. For they shall be filled. No. It says those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you go after God, then you're going to be filled and satisfied. Next, Ryan. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus is telling us that if we want to be forgiven, if you want to be one of his children living in his kingdom, we must, we must be people who forgive and show mercy. Simply put, we must forgive in order to be forgiven, and our actions will show that. That Don't miss that point. We can say we forgive someone, but until our actions follow that, I'll let you fill in the blank. Our actions need to show that there truly is forgiveness. Next, Ryan. See, Ryan doesn't like this. He, you know, he, does, he wants me to be able to use it because now he has to pay attention. <laughs> right? All right, yeah, all right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, after Jesus saves us, Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit, they then begin to transform us into the likeness of His Son. That's a lifetime process. That deals with the message of sanctification and just giving God of all of who you are. But I do not believe that's a one-time event. But that lasts for the rest of our life. This is a journey that begins most of the time with our minds. We talked about this. Why is that? Because if God has your mind, God has your heart. And if God has your heart, then he has your eyes. And if he has your eyes, then he has your feet and your hands. And he's got every part of you. If he has your mind and your heart, then he has your relationships. Somebody say amen to that. He has your relationships. He has your influences. He has everything about you. See, he's trying to make us more like him. He's trying to make us pure. To be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What Jesus was saying here, to put it as simply and succinctly as I can, He was saying that you cannot be one of my disciples. You cannot be a citizen in my kingdom if in your hurtful or painful relationships you do nothing about it. It's basically what he was saying. I'm telling you that those who are of my kingdom are characterized as being peacemakers. Remember we talked about not peace lovers. Everyone loves peace, but it takes intentional effort to be a peacemaker. And we said the three things that you have to do with that is you first have to humble yourself before God. Then you have to seek the Lord. Lord, what is it that you want me to do in this situation? When you humble yourself, then you're in a position to hear from God. And then when he tells you, you need to go to that person, or you need to take this step, or sometimes he'll just say you just need to pray. But whatever it is, humble yourself Seek God's direction and obey. Obey some of the, the hardest things to do. And then lastly, the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this last week. This was our topic last week. This world is not our home, folks, we said, but it's Satan's. It doesn't understand the culture of the kingdom and what it does understand offends them. And if you are a citizen in the kingdom of God, 
you will face some kind of persecution, be it in your employment, be it in your social life, be it in your family life. That was a quick review of where we've been since March. Since May, though, we've only covered the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5, but really the entirety of Jesus' words that day, that day on the hillside, they, they encompass chapters 5 through 7. We hit a little bit on this during this series, but the entirety of what he says covers chapters 5 through 7, teachings that the world up until that point had never heard of before. Things like this. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you hate, if you have hate in your heart towards a brother, you are in danger of judgment. He also said, You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you that whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, now Jesus is dealing with the unseen world. Something that they never really dealt with. Jesus went on to have strong words about divorce. He went on to talk about turning the other cheek whenever you're slapped. Talking about loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you doing good to those who hate you. He then deals with our pocketbooks and our money. This is all in chapters 5 through 7. He talks about judging others. He then talks about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now there's one thing that we cannot do, and that is confuse the Sermon on the Mount with the Gospel. Did you hear what I just said? Let me say that again. We cannot confuse the Sermon on the Mount as the Gospel. I mean, the Gospel, the good news, the, sal- the saving message of Jesus Christ. That's what I mean. The Gospel is all of the Word of God, and of course we understand that. But you see, the Sermon on the Mount is not really for the unsaved. It's for the saved. I never heard that concept before, did you? might be something that you have to think about throughout the afternoon. The Sermon on the Mount is not really for the unsaved, it's for the saved. But many in and outside of the church feel that all they need to do is try and practice the principles in Matthew 5 through 7, and they're going to have a good life and perhaps gain favor with God. But do you realize that if you try without Christ in your life, if you try to practice what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5 through 7, that's what produces the hypocrites in our world. This kind of thinking has produced more hypocrites in the church than anything. Why do I say that? Because no one, hear me on this, no one can ever attain what Jesus talked about by sheer human determination. Can't do it. You see, when someone tries to cultivate these attitudes in and of themselves, they'll become frustrated. Maybe some of you have become frustrated as you have tried to do this yourself. You become frustrated. You realize it's an unwinnable war, a war that you're fighting against the person in the mirror. 
Do you get what I'm saying here? Well, Jesus' words is not really for the unsaved. It's for the church, the saved. The only way that you can live out what Jesus spoke about that day is if you first become a citizen of his kingdom, if you become a child of God, then and only then will you be in a position to live out through the Holy Spirit's infilling, through the Holy Spirit's power, through the Holy Spirit's help. Then can you live out this life that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5-7. through I want to read a story. Um, how many of you have heard of uh, maybe your radio listeners' uh, uh, Messages, J. Vernon McGee. Anybody ever heard that name, J. Vernon McGee? All right. Uh, I want to read a story from J. Vernon McGee. Man, I should have brought my glasses. These are getting a lot smaller than they ever used to be. And I'll read his words. Quote, This incident took place during my first pastorate when I was a lot more blunt than I am now, is what he said. An elder in the church I served in Nashville, Tennessee, invited me to speak at a Chamber of Commerce luncheon. This elder was a very wonderful man. He was the vice president of a bank in the city, a member of the Chamber of Commerce. And when he had asked me to bring a brief message, he said, You won't have but a few minutes, but I want you to give these businessmen the gospel. Well, I arrived at the place a little early, and there were several men standing around. I went up near the speaker's table, and there was a man there who shook hands with me and began to say one curse word after another. I had never seen such a fine-looking, well-dressed man curse as this man did. Finally, he said to me, so what do you do? I've had that happen to me before. Some of you have too. I told him that I was a preacher. And he began to cover up immediately. He apologized for his language. He didn't need to apologize to me. He needed to apologize to God because God had heard him all the time. Then he wanted me to know that he was an officer in a certain church. And he boasted, quote, The Sermon on the Mount is my religion. It is, I said. Let's shake hands. I congratulate you. You've got a wonderful religion. By the way, how are you doing with it? What do you mean? You said that the Sermon on the Mount is your religion. Are you living by it? Well, I try. That's not quite it. The Lord said that you are blessed if you do those things, not if you vote for them. Are you keeping it? Well, I think I am. Do you mind if we take a little test? He was bold, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. All right, the man said. The Sermon on the Mount says that if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty of murder. Are you keeping that one? Well, that's pretty strong, but I don't think I've been angry enough to kill anyone. And I quoted the one the Lord gave on adultery. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart, and asked him, how about that one? Oh, I guess that one would get me, he said. Well, I imagine that there are several things in the Sermon on the Mount that would get you. Apparently, you are not living by your religion, 
If I were you, I'd change my religion and get something that works. He goes on to say, oh, how many people there are that are like this man. They're very, they very piously say that the Sermon on the Mount is their religion. But all they mean is that they think it is a good document and a very fine expression, but it doesn't affect them in one bit. I found out later that the man I was talking with had two wives, one at home and one at his office. My friend, if the Sermon on the Mount is your religion, you had better make sure you're keeping it. It is loaded with the law, but if you will look at the Sermon on the Mount honestly, it will bring you to a Savior who died for you on the cross. Kind of quiet. You see, God does not want partnerships. He wants ownership. He doesn't want partnerships. He wants ownership. I saw Stephanie retweeted something the other day from A.W. Tozer. And he said this, The Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, Church is for us. Not so much the unsaved. The unsaved accept Christ and he about the process and then he sets them on a Matthew 5 through 7. Then he goes about the process of cleaning us up, which is a lifelong process. I want to do a quick pivot here and look at something that Jesus said following the Beatitudes. But I want to tie it all together. Matthew 5, 1 through 12 were the Beatitudes. But in Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus said this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. This verse has made a lot of impact even in the unchurched world. Um, When people, churched or unchurched, uh, maybe they want to refer to an individual or a group of people who are humble or hardworking or have Midwestern values. A lot of times they'll they'll say things like, people like that are of the salt of the earth. You've heard people say that. This is a great term of endearment, so to speak. But as I close this message in this this series, I want to briefly look at Jesus' words here. I thought about this a couple months ago. I read this next verse and I thought, why did he put this here? And God began to speak to me. You see, in the ancient world, salt was known for having three main purposes. The first purpose is that salt stood for purity. Salt stood for purity. Some of you who are sleeping, I want to wake you up. All right? Wake up. All right. Not like this is a huge thing, but I want to give you a little visual here. 
I asked Stephanie how much this was before I did this. We're going to have to buy another one of these, honey. Just, just looking at salt gives the connotation of purity, doesn't it? It's white. Now, kids, when you come up, do not touch this. Uh, Miss Cheryl gave you candy or whatever that was. Yeah, boy, you'll, you'll be riding high. The ancient Romans believed that salt was the purest of all things because they said it came from the purest of all things. It came from the sun and the sea. One of the things that stood for the most was purity in the ancient world. One of the things that's happening in our world today is the lowering of standards and morality in our culture. Standards of honesty, integrity, a work ethic, morality. Those are all standards that tend to be lowered over time. But the believer must be one who raises the bar and sets the example of absolute purity. We talked, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. We must be the people who hold the standard for everything that we do, church. Colossians 4, 6 says this. Paul said, let your speech always be with grace. And he said, seasoned with salt. That kind of brings on a new connotation, doesn't it? Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So the question is, how is your speech? How is my speech? How is your conduct and how are your thoughts? As we talked about last week, we cannot escape the world. But as James put it, we must be unstained by the world. Unfortunately, the name Christian has not always carried with it a good reputation. Hypocritical lifestyles, moral failures in the church, outside the church, and and more have impacted the name of Jesus' followers. Some of you may have heard this, but... uh, Years ago, back when the Church of God's national camp meeting was held in Anderson University, and I would imagine this would be the same, maybe perhaps with other movements and denominations, that was the week that brought a lot of business to the area. A lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels, they, they look forward to that week, so to speak, because it brought a lot of money to them. But it was also told by one particular restaurant owner that their restaurant and their waiters and waitresses hated it when Anderson Camp Meeting came to town. Because the people that came in to eat, the Christians there for camp meeting, were rude, would never tip, but always leave tracks on the table instead of a tip. Say amen or ouch to that, right, Lynn? That's right. Yeah. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Our actions. Look, I didn't say we're perfect. Remember I said it's a lifelong process. 
But Jesus said you are to be salt of the earth. You are to be pure in your thoughts and in your speech and in your conduct. Some of you may get an opportunity today when you go out to eat to be salt to a rude waiter or a rude waitress having no idea what they may be going through in their life. Be salt to someone today. That's the first thing that stands out. The second thing, salt was an essential preservative. In the ancient world, salt was the most common form of preserving food. Most of us know that. Salt kept things from going corrupt. George Washington made this quote, Associate with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation. For it is better to be alone than in bad company. You read that again. Associate with men or women of good quality if you esteem.